stabbing of the city proper. <clears throat> We're going through this because there's so, so many valuable lessons and insights for so many areas of our lives that come out of this little book. And so, as we have in the past, I just continue to encourage you to read it, read it again, read it again, so that over the summer months and into September, you'll, you'll, you will not just be doing what we do here on Sunday mornings, but you'll be doing this in your own private time. Uh, take notes. <clears throat> uh, ask the Holy Spirit to show you things that, that he did not show to Gary or Will. Ask the Spirit of God to be your teacher and your encourager through this little book. This morning, we're going to be in chapter 4, and where we're going to glean some more valuable truths and principles from God's Word. So I'd ask you to stand. We're going to read verses 1 through 9. I'll read it for you. You can follow along in your Bibles or phones or up on the screen. 1 through 9, and then skip down to verses 21 through 23. We'll be incorporating the entire chapter in the message. Now, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. He said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish? And burned ones at that. Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yeah, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he'll break it down their, he'll break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads. Give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt, and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Down to verse 21. So we labored at the work. And half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. And now, Lord God, open our eyes that we may see wondrous things from your law. Spirit of God, be our teacher, be our encourager, be our convictor. May we leave different because we have met with you, we have been with your people, and we have placed ourselves under your word. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> I 
This chapter, as you can tell, I mean, much of the book is this way, but this chapter kind of especially, it's about warfare. It's about the fight. Um, And so we're going to be learning principles of warfare this morning. And as we go through the message, you will see why this is so important for you, for us as a church, for your marriages, for you who are parents of children, raising up your children, living in a godless culture, living in a culture that is against, living in a world that is filled with darkness. So let me share with you some principles that come from Nehemiah chapter 4. Principle or truth number one, you need to know your enemy. You need to know your enemy. See, Nehemiah and the Jews who were seeking to rebuild Jerusalem were reminded very quickly of what they already knew, that they had enemies. Those who would oppose them, those who would attempt to stop what they were doing, those who would attempt to create confusion in the city... I want to show you the map uh, from last week. This is where we're talking about. This is uh, the province of Yehud or Judah, Jerusalem right there, pretty much in the middle. Now the next slide will show you the locations of the enemies in red. Sanballat the Horonite coming down from the north. Tobiah and the Ammonites coming in from the east. Geshem and the Arabs coming up from the south and the Ashdodites coming in from the coast. And so they were essentially surrounded on all sides, north, south, east, and west, by their enemies. John MacArthur writes, when God's people attempt to do God's work in God's way, there will always be opposition. And that's so true. You find that all the way through the Bible. You find that throughout recorded history, over and over and over again. When God's people attempt to do God's work in God's way, there will always be opposition. Think about it, friends. Noah sought to do God's will in building the ark, and he was opposed by a godless culture that wanted nothing to do with his proclamation of God's righteousness. Moses sought to do God's will in delivering the Israelites from bondage in Egypt and was opposed by the hard hearted Pharaoh. Daniel sought to do God's will and not bow down to the image of Nebuchadnezzar. He was thrown into the lion's den. Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, sought to be faithful to the Lord, and they were thrown into the fiery furnace. Mary and Joseph, the earthly parents of our Lord Jesus, sought to do God's will in giving birth to Jesus, staying together as a couple, and were forced to flee to Egypt. Paul was imprisoned, Stephen was stoned, the early church was persecuted, the apostles were martyred, and throughout the history of the church, that has been the story. For the past 2,000 years, the church of Jesus Christ has encountered opposition to its message, to its mission, and to the Savior that it proclaims and represents. And those of you who are individual believers, you know it's not just the church corporate that faces opposition. You face opposition when you stand for Christ, when you represent Jesus to the world. As an individual believer, you who seek to know God and to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, albeit imperfectly, you're still seeking to follow Christ. You encounter opposition 
because of your faith, sometimes from family members who don't believe as you believe, sometimes from colleagues and co-workers who don't share your values. Whenever God's people seek to faithfully do the will of God, seeking to follow Christ in faith and obedience, you'll have your enemies. Now, I want you to notice the progression that takes place here with the enemies. It's pretty interesting to me. It starts out with extreme displeasure. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly. And so it begins with, we don't like what you're doing. Then it leads to mocking and bullying. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard it, and so it spread to Geshem. Now we got three. They jeered at us and despised us. They mocked them. They laughed at them. Then it leads to volatile anger. When Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. So it goes from displeasure, including some mocking and bullying, now to volatile anger that we were building the wall. Then what you do, you don't want it just to be you by yourself. You want to gather others around you who will join you in this effort. And so you incite others. You get others to join in. We see this with demonstrations all the time. What may start out with a handful of people suddenly is a street filled with people. You incite the crowds. He said in the presence of his brothers and in the presence of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? So he's, he's inciting more people. And then it leads to actually plotting harm. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. Verse 11, our enemies said they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. <clears throat> you see, friends, Samballot, Tobiah, Geshem, the Ammonites, the Ashdodites, the Arabs, they are all representative of all those throughout history who have opposed God, who oppose God today, who oppose God's people, who oppose God's plan and God's purposes. There have always been Sanballats and Tobias, and there always will be. I was reminded of Acts chapter 5. It's not up on the screen, but I want to read just a piece of it for you. In Acts 5, the apostles have been told to stop preaching in the name of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> they've been threatened, they've been thrown in prison, then they've been, let, they've been arrested, and then they've been let out. In Acts 5, verse 29, it says, Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by bringing him on a, hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his, his right hand. When they heard this, the Pharisees, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood, stood up and gave orders to put the man outside for a little while. He said to them, men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. Before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed. All who followed him were dispersed. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census, drew some of the, some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men, from Peter and James and John. Let them alone. 
If this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. Here's the key. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. That's what you find throughout history. It's not just people opposing you or opposing the church or opposing your values. It is people opposing God. Now, before we leave this first point, let's place the reactions of Nehemiah's enemies, displeasure, hatred, mocking, jeering, anger, inciting others, plotting to... Place all of that, place the Nehemiah narrative next to the narrative of how people reacted to Jesus Christ. At his birth, Herod was extremely distressed with news of a king being born as king of the Jews. So what did he do? He plotted to have the wise men tell him where they found him so that he could go worship him, which he never intended to do. He was furious when he discovered that they had tricked him, calling for the slaughter of all male infants and toddler boys under the age of two. Throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, the Pharisees mocked him. The teachers of the law tried to corner him. The priests were threatened by him. The Sanhedrin sought false testimony against him. They all hated him. Together they plotted to kill him. They incited the crowds to join in the fury, who then spit in his face, mocked him, and with great animosity cried out with one voice, crucify him. The Roman soldiers stripped him, put a mock royal robe on him, jammed a crown of thorns on his head, stuck a reed in his right hand, and knelt down before him with jeering and laughter, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spit on him, struck him in the face, scourged him, and nailed him to a cross. And you and I were there. With them all. And it was for your grievous sins and my heinous sins that he endured it all. Because apart from his grace, we all oppose God. You can call yourself a friend of Jesus today because he has made you his friend by his grace, his mercy. Don't think it is anything in you. And so just as Nehemiah was seeking to do God's will, met with tremendous opposition, Jesus had come to do the Father's will on the greatest mission that the angels of heaven had ever seen God embark upon. And Jesus encountered the greatest level of opposition that Satan and the world could amass against him. Why? Because the enemy hates him. And the enemy hates all those who name his name. Friends, listen to me. If you are in Christ today, you have an enemy. And like Nehemiah knew his enemies, you need to know yours. Let me remind you. John 8, he was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. That's your enemy. 
that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them day and night before our God. That's our enemy. The prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, that's our enemy. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Those are our enemies. Therefore, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, and he hopes that it is you. Brothers and sisters, do not be ignorant and do not be naive. Understand your enemy. If you have stepped across the line through coming to faith in Jesus Christ, if you have said, I do, to Jesus, then you have a sworn adversary. You need to know his tactics. You need to know his ploys. You need to know his strategies. You need to know where he is most inclined to attack your wall. You need to know where there are breaches in your wall. You need to know where there are some gates that need to be repaired. You need to be sober-minded, watchful, not fearful. There is a difference here. Watchful, vigilant, not fearful, never fearful. For greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Nevertheless, be watchful, be vigilant, Because he is always on the prowl. Know your enemy. Number two, pray often. Pray often. This is a recurring observation in the life of Nehemiah that we see running through the entire book. He was characterized as a man of continuous prayer. Friends, he did not have a compartment in his life called prayer. That's important for you to know. He lived in prayer. He lived in prayer. He was characterized as a man of continuous prayer. We saw this in the opening chapters, and we find it again here in chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own. Notice the call for justice in this prayer. I think sometimes as God's people, we're afraid to to call for justice. I think sometimes our prayers are too nice, to be honest with you. Nice prayers do not take into consideration that we have an enemy. Turn back their taunt on their own heads. Give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt. Let not there be sin blotter. He's praying against the enemies of God. Verse 9, we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. I think Nehemiah would have liked Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century British preacher extraordinaire. And not so much for his preaching. He would have loved his preaching, but that's not where he would have been in single. It's in Spurgeon's approach to prayer. Spurgeon wrote, when I pray, I like to go to God just as I go to a bank clerk when I have a check to be cashed. 
I walk in, put the check down on the counter, and the clerk gives me my money. I take it up and go about my business. I did not know that I ever stopped in a bank five minutes to talk with the clerks. Maybe you should have. You know, who knows? When I have received my change, I go away and attend to other matters. That is how I like to pray. But there is a way of praying that seems like lounging near the mercy seat as though one had no particular reason for being found there. Now, don't take away from that the notion that Spurgeon didn't believe or never experienced the delight that comes from lounging at the mercy seat because you desperately need to receive mercy. You with me on that? I think what he's pointing out here is to a large degree, Spurgeon believed in the, in the practicality and necessity of prayer in times of great need. Nehemiah prayed like Spurgeon. Think about it as you go through Nehemiah. He prayed like Spurgeon. He walked up to the counter with a check and in humble faith trusted that God was going to cash that check. Nehemiah had no hesitation in bringing his needs to God. He firmly believed that God heard the humble prayers of his people when they cried out for help. When's the last time you cried out to God for help? Desperate help. Brothers and sisters, Whatever the wall is that you are rebuilding, whatever gate you are repairing, whatever the enemies may be that threaten to undo you, Nehemiah would stand here today and tell you to trust God in prayer, to pray continuously, to pray humbly, to pray believing, and to pray often. Principle number three, take up your armor. Take up your armor. Now, at first sight, this might seem to be contradictory to the notion of prayer. I mean, if you're praying and trusting God, why do you need to take up armor? And if you take up armor, are you still trusting God or are you trusting your armor? You see, sometimes we get all hung up trying to dissect these things, and we really shouldn't try to dissect them. You ask the question, are these two activities contrary to each other? Well, apparently not, because Nehemiah did both. Nehemiah prayed He lived in prayer, and he took up the armor. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction. Half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. Those who carried burdens, so there were those who were were hauling in the supplies, and then there were the builders who were actually building the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. Same in verse 21. Half of them held the spears while the others labored at the work. What does this look like for us? We don't have actual spears. We don't have shields and bows and arrows and swords and coats of mail. Can you imagine if we all came to church on a Sunday morning with spears and shields and swords, it'd be kind of hard to have conceal and carry at that point, I think. But that's, that's the situation because that's not us. Because we're not engaged in physical warfare. We're engaged in spiritual warfare. Our enemy is different. Our enemy is not Sanballat and Tobiah. Our enemy is different 
Our enemy uses different kinds of tactics and strategies. I mean, it's, it's kind of like, like the war on terror. It's a different kind of war. This enemy uses different tactics than those used in previous wars. Same is true for us. First off, our enemy is invisible. Again, Ephesians 6. We wrestle against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, spiritual forces in the heavenly places. Ours is a spiritual warfare, no less real than physical warfare, and it actually, with much more on the line than physical warfare. Because we're fighting for our soul and the souls of other people. Do you get that? Our warfare is involving souls. The Apostle Paul describes it for us in Ephesians 6. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, every day, every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Paul knew Nehemiah. He's giving us the New Testament version of Nehemiah 4 in Ephesians 6. Pray often, take up your armor. Now friends, hear me on this. To the degree that we do not pray and to the degree that we do not see the need for armor, to that degree we do not believe that we have an enemy or that there is a war. And so we find ourselves speaking to ourselves, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Number four, I love this one. Do the next thing. <clears throat> Just do the next thing. Think about it. They know their enemies. They've prayed. They've taken up their swords and shields and prepared just in case they get attacked. Then it says in verse 6, So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. <clears throat> Again in verse 15, When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. Do the next thing. Do whatever it is that you were doing. Do whatever it is that God has called you to do. Do whatever it happens to be in, in your calling in life. Keep moving forward. And now, work with even greater confidence and boldness than you had before. Because you have thought about who your enemy is. You've thought about what enemies are coming from the north, south, east, and west. You, you've, you've started to just pray through the days of your, of your life. You're praying often. You're taking up your armor. And so with confidence, you can just keep moving forward, doing what God's called you to do, whatever that is. 
You see, friends, I'm convinced one of Satan's primary objectives with the people of God is to get you to quit. Whatever it is, to immobilize you, to paralyze you with fear, to cripple you with confusion, he wants you to quit. He wants you to quit fighting. He wants you to quit praying. He wants you to quit persevering, quit trusting, quit believing. He wants to foment despair, discouragement, defeat. He wants for you to question God's goodness, disbelieve God's promises, and doubt God's word. That's your enemy. He wants you to quit. And so if you're in a season of life right now where that's what's happening, Nehemiah and all of his friends would stand here and say, do the next thing in faith, believing, trusting. Principle number five, the most important one of them all as far as I'm concerned, remember the Lord. Remember the Lord Nehemiah says, I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Oh, that's good. Verse 20, our God will fight for us. You see, what we need to understand, you need to be clear on this as we make our way through Nehemiah, is that it wasn't Nehemiah's leadership skills that made him who he was. It wasn't his organizational skills. It wasn't his artful persuasion with Artaxerxes. It wasn't his ability to rally the people with motivational speeches. It wasn't his knowledge of how to build walls and repair gates. It wasn't his military prowess in defending against the enemy. As, as valuable as some of those things may have been, friends, it wasn't any of those things that made Nehemiah who he was. Do you know what it was? It was his faith. It was his faith. He believed. He believed God's promises he had faith in God's character. He had faith in God's power, in God's protection. He believed that God would see this mission through to completion because God started it and God would finish it. The Apostle Paul wrote, I am convinced that he who began a good work in me will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's his work. I don't have a whole lot of faith in my ability to sustain anything. I have complete confidence in my Savior's ability to sustain my faith. Far above everything else that you can say about Nehemiah, you've got to stand on the rock of his faith. He says, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. By, way that, by the way, that is a word that should be reserved for God and God's works. Psalm 66, how awesome are your 
deeds. We throw around the word awesome so cheaply. We use it to describe our favorite dessert, a movie that we happen to see, a song that we heard. I just personally believe that the word awesome should be reserved only for God. Nothing else comes close to drawing your sense of awe and wonder. And so that's what every single day, Nehemiah, remember the Lord. And friends, that's the essence of faith, to remember the Lord, to remind yourself every day, no matter the circumstances that you're going through, your God is great and awesome. Remember him. Remind yourself every day. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Because that's what drives out fear. Notice the connection. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord. Do not be afraid of them. Instead of this, this. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. This is what drives out this. There's a Zach Williams song that I'm sure some of you have heard on the radio. I like it. When he told you you're not good enough, when he told you you're not right, when he told you you're not strong enough to put up a good fight, when he told you you're not worthy, when he told you you're not loved, when he told you you're not beautiful, that you'll never be enough, Fear, he is a liar. He will take your breath, stop you in your steps. He will rob your rest, steal your happiness, cast your fear in the fire, because fear, he is a liar. When he told you you were troubled, you'll forever be alone. When he told you you should run away, you'll never find a home. When he told you you were dirty, you should be ashamed. When he told you you could be the one that grace could never change. Fear, he is a liar. He will take your breath, stop you in your steps. He will rob your rest, steal your happiness, cast your fear in the fire, because fear, he is a liar. Now, Zach Williams, of course, uses poetic license to personify fear. But you and I know that behind the fear is the father of lies who will always seek to instill fear into the hearts of God's people. He's been doing that since day one. And so with biblical accuracy, it could read, Satan, he is a liar. He will take your breath, stop you in your steps. He will rob your rest, steal your happiness, cast your fear in the fire, because Satan, he is a liar. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Friends, what is it for you? You know, I showed you the map earlier of how Jerusalem was surrounded. We'll put it back up on the screen. Surrounded on north, south, east, and west by all of their enemies. Every direction they turned, there was the threat of being attacked. What does it look like for you? Let me give you some suggestions from the next slide. There's you in the middle. What are the enemies that are attacking you these days? Temptations? Fleshly temptations? Temptations to go backwards? Persecutions? Your own sense of failure? My goodness, don't we all wrestle with that? How many times have we failed? A sense of regret? Is that what's attacking you? Worries? Who here does not 
wrestle with worries. Discouragement, infirmities, physical infirmities, trials, conflicts, interpersonal conflicts, marital conflicts, conflicts at work. Nehemiah calls to us over the centuries with the simple charge, remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And the writer of Hebrews adds to this by telling us that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And so you take that same diagram and you add the witnesses to it. You are in the middle. You remember the Lord. But you have multitudes of saints. It'd be like putting you in the middle of Bush Stadium, fighting with your enemies, and you've got 42,000 cheering fans of saints throughout. You've got Abraham and Nehemiah and David and Paul and Peter and James and relatives of your past who love Jesus cheering for you, cheering for you, telling you to keep your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, for he will get the victory. Know your enemy Pray often, take up your armor, do the next thing, remember the Lord. Let's pray together. Take a minute. Just to talk to the Lord, please, right now. The Spirit of God takes the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. I believe, I have to believe that the word of God has spoken to you today. What is God saying to you? Dear Lord, thank you for Thank you for Nehemiah. Thank you for the people that stood with him on the wall. Thank you, Lord, that throughout history there have been Nehemiahs. Most of them in the most hidden places that you could find. In villages, towns of all sizes, all around the globe. Husbands and wives, dads and moms, young people who have been seeking to know and follow you and to fix their eyes on Jesus, trusting you, fighting their enemies. Thank you for the things that you reminded of us today, Lord. Especially thank you for reminding us to remember you, the one who is great and awesome.
pray for my brothers and sisters, especially those who feel as if their enemies are more than they can handle. Oh, God, extend special grace and mercy, please. And may we be the people of God to surround our brothers and sisters who are going through challenging times. Thank you for the promise that you will never leave us nor forsake us. We pray in Christ's name, amen.